Plan your work and work your plan. For many athletes, words like these are scripture. Permanent signposts lining the long road to success. The very act of pursuing a career in sports gives a sense of control, a sense of safety. Just stick to the plan. Good things will follow. That is until life hits you. The kind of life that happens when you're making other plans. Devastating setbacks, seemingly mundane moments, when things change unexpectedly and catch you without looking. Then the first question becomes, what's your next play? From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. Taylor, first of all, huge congratulations. I know that... (laughs) It's hard to even, I know, even speak right now. You're incredibly emotional. Can you even explain to people what's going on in your mind right now? Yeah, I mean, this means a lot. Um, It's been a long journey. (laughs) I mean, it went almost nine months that I didn't win a match. Like one match. And I quit. But I quit for three days. After a couple of days, my coach at the time, I called him and I was like, can I come hit? Like, I, I, I think I'm ready. And it was like three days. He's like, okay, yeah, come on. He just literally ran me for two hours straight. We didn't even talk about, you know, the moment of you quitting. Him making me run for two hours was just like, basically like, don't you ever give up? Like, don't you ever quit? No matter how th- hard things get, like, you continue to go and you continue to move one foot in front of the other. On this episode of Blindsided, we welcome Taylor Townsend. Taylor has been a name in the tennis world for some time. She dominated in the junior division, achieving a grand slam in singles and a number one world juniors ranking. Then she turned pro. But staying at the top of the professional level was tough. Taylor opens up to Diane and I about depression, the journey of finding the right therapy, and the mental toughness it takes to pursue a comeback. This year, Taylor became a mother, and it's safe to say her son, Aiden, will grow up in a household that fosters resilience as Taylor makes her comeback to tennis. Here's Taylor Townsend on Blindsided. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to grow up in in your house? A little bit about your family and your early years. Yeah, so I was born in the south side of Chicago, lived there until I was eight, moved to Atlanta, had a sister. Well, I have not had, have a sister who's older, uh, two years older than me, Simone. She played tennis, which is kind of how I not necessarily got introduced to the sport, but I was always around while she was taking lessons. And like, I would throw balls at her because I was mad that I couldn't play too, because I was too, too young. Um, so she was, you know, kind of the pioneer of us, you know, starting to play tennis. And uh, my mom 
was the one that kind of introduced us to the sport. My dad was a multi-sport athlete, played football, basketball, baseball, was just an overall kind of great athlete. So I, he always says that he prides himself on my athletic genes that I get it from him. Now I, I have a, a baby sister that is, is seven. So my dad, you know, decided that he wanted another child later in life. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so it's great. She's she's awesome. But, you know, it's, it's, it's strange because it's such a, a large age gap. It almost feels like I'm kind of like her mom, you know, I'm like, give her to me. She can come to my house. You know, like it's just totally different than how I grew up with my sister. But she's amazing. I love her. She's a lot like me. So I, I like her a lot just for that. <laughs> I would like to understand a little bit more about who you were as a young youngster. You know, you had this sister you looked up to, your mom, it sounded like you had a racket in your hand when you were four. But yeah. what were you like? Headstrong, kind of the passive one? Who was early no. Taylor? <laughs> I gathered not <laughs> passive. No, I mean, I was, um, I was, I'm, I am, because I still kind of have some of these characteristics about myself now, but like a very headstrong, very persistent. I kind of was like, I'm not going to stop until I get what I want. If I do something, I'm going to blame it on my sister just so I can get away with it. <laughs> you know how that goes. But um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been very strong, a natural leader. Um, I've always enjoyed team environments. And even though I'd never played team sports, but like when I played Fed Cup and when I played, you know, team things in tennis, doubles and, and even kind of team environments, I've always done well in that because I just feel like, you know, everyone's relying on me. Um, so I've always kind of been that headstrong, very leader role that I've loved ever since I was younger. You know, I've, I've always been a very strong individual, which I think kind of speaks to my story and my perseverance that I've kind of had to endure over the course of my life. It's just kind of been one of those things that I never really thought about. I just kind of kept it moving. And I've always been that kind of person where, you know, if you get knocked down, you just kind of keep going. You keep just trekking along and, and that's how I've always been. Now, you both, you and your sister were players, and you spoke so lovingly about her. You've got two high-performing athletes in the same family just a couple years apart. How is she different than you? You're a natural leader. You're wanting to win. You're driving. Like most elite athletes, what about her? My sister's very competitive, but just in a different way. Like, she's not the in-your-face type of competitor. She's more of, like, that internal competitor where she has that, like— you know, drive within herself, like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. But she's not outward about it. Like me, I'd be like all in your face, talking trash. Like, you know, like even when we would play doubles together, like I'd be talking trash to her, like on the same side of the court, you know? So it's like, I'm more like in your face. Like I'm going to be here and I'm going to let you know that I'm here and I'm here to stay. Our games are complete opposite. Like I'm love to come to the net. I'm a very like, handsy, want to do a lot of things with the ball. And she's like a power player. So it would kind of be like total opposites when we would play each other. Like she hit everything really, really hard and deep through the court. And me, I would hit more spins and, you know, all types of junk. So that's how I felt when I would play her. I would like, no matter what I throw at you, it's not good enough. And I'd be just, so then I started going to the mind games because my <laughs> stuff wasn't working. <laughs> so I was like, I definitely know how to get under your skin. So I'm good at that. So I'm going to do that. She's more the ones where she's just going to kind of keep plugging away. So she's been incredibly persistent in her own way. She got an injury that most people wouldn't come back from physically. She tore all the ligaments in her knee, had nerve damage in her foot, like literally couldn't control 
her foot. Like it would just drop down when she would walk. And so nobody thought that she was going to be able to really do physical activity to the highest level again. And within a couple of years, she rehabbed and got a full ride to school on a scholarship. So, I mean, she's definitely has the same type of characteristics. I just think that we kind of go about it in a different way. But, you know, our life, both of our lives have shaped us to be the the women that we are and have, you know, thrown obstacles in different ways, but we've been able to see it through. So, Taylor, I wanted to walk you through a little bit about what you wrote in the Tribune article and... What I loved about the way you started was really reflecting on what I think of as the simple joys of being a kid playing sports, and especially when you're one of those gifted kids, as all elite athletes seem to be. But then you started to talk about even really young hearing other parents speak. So I'm wondering, when you look back, can you talk about when you realized you were the object of ridicule or that parents were behaving in that way? I honestly don't think that I was aware of those things until probably like I really started doing well. When I was younger, my sister and I both played ahead of our age group. So we weren't playing against our peers. And so when we would try to go back and play against our peers because we were we were doing well against the the girls who were a lot older than us, so the parents would complain and you know, say that it's not fair because we're playing at this level and we're trying to, you know, dominate at this level. And can we see her birth certificate? We don't think she's this old and, you know, she's lying about her age and there's no way she's 12. And so we we dealt with those things, but in a way where we were kind of shielded from it, we knew that it was happening, but we didn't really have to deal with it head on. It was more like you just go out on the court and let your racket do the talking. So, you know, we it wasn't a thing where the kids were super included in the drama, let's say, because the drama was like, you have to come face to face. Whereas now you have social media, anybody can get to you in any type of way. People who you don't even know have access to you. So it wasn't really like that when I was growing up. But I mean, I don't know. It's it's strange. Like once I started doing well, I started to see more of the ridicule of like, you know, more people just talking about like my size and, you know, my game and maybe like, you know, pointing out things that I wasn't aware of as a, as a kid. Like I was just playing and I enjoyed playing and I loved playing tennis and it was fun for me. And then it kind of made that switch when I started getting more exposure to like nitpicking at certain things. And that's when I kind of became aware of like, kind of, I would say insecurities or flaws that I wasn't even aware of before, you know, people said something. Do you remember, can you talk a little bit about how you felt about your body as a younger player? And maybe you didn't even think about it at all. But then when that sort of changed, when when you started to hear things or get a sense Mm -hmm. something was going on, can you talk about that? Yeah, I, um, I never was aware of like size or anything because everything for me when we were growing up was equated to like, are you winning? Like my coach always would say, like, you could be 500 pounds, but if you're beating everybody and you're number one, it doesn't matter. Like you're dominating. So I never thought about like, I always knew that I wasn't small. I was always taller person in my class or, you know, bigger, whatever. But I never thought about like, I'm a big girl or I'm larger than this. Like I never thought about that. I always equated it to like, I'm winning. I'm able to play my game. I'm able to do what I need to do and I'm able to perform on court. That's all that matters. 
that shift kind of started happening when I was down in Florida and I was probably around, you know, 14 and my coaches would kind of say things like, you know, you need to do extra fitness or you need to do a little bit of extra running and, you know, kind of insinuating like you have to do more than everybody else because of this. They weren't really saying that this, but we you kind of got the idea of like what it was. And it wasn't just me. Like there were a couple of girls who were not the typical body frame. And you know, I remember vividly like one of the girls like literally passing out in the middle of the week because she was so tired. She was so exhausted. She was doing, she had ran like a total of like 28 miles extra on top of like our fitness and conditioning and four hours plus on court a day. So that was just pure like extra running, but she was just trying to do it just to, you know, show that she was bought into what they were trying to get her to do. And um, it's honestly, it's sad, but that's kind of like when that started and where I started to be like, you know, I do need, maybe I need to do a little bit extra and started becoming, you know, cognizant about my size, my weight. You know, they do the little skin test where they like pull, you know, yeah, like as you know, they pinch your body fat, they pinch on your stomach and I'm like, oh, geez. So it's kind of those things that you start to go through where you weren't exposed to before. And, you know, you kind of chalk it up to, oh, this is what you have to do to become an elite athlete or to take yourself to the next level. But it was no real process behind it. It was just kind of like it. For me, it felt embarrassing, you know, because I was always like aware of it and it always was a topic of conversation. And as I started to do better, yes, people were like, oh, you're great. But it, it was always a but. But you mm-hmm. can get in better shape. But if I lost the match, oh, she probably she got tired or, you know, it's not that I was having a bad day. It was, you know, she probably got fatigued and wasn't able to, you know, keep the match duration at the same level, which is was rarely the case. I can't tell you a time when I lost the match because I was like physically exhausted. Like I can't even tell you. So it wasn't that. From the aspect of the the tennis world, you know, I'm atypical. We look at the the average girl who was praised and it's someone like Sharapova before her Kornikova, where you have tall, small, thin, and Ivanovich, you know, all of these people, Hantukova, you have these girls who those were the ones that were like looked at as the ones that were like in shape and that that was kind of like the imagery that you had when you thought about tennis and the faces of tennis. Like when Venus and Serena came along, like they were in absolutely like unbelievable shape and they still are. I mean, Venus is 41 or 42 and is still playing. I mean, that just shows she's in great condition and she's still being able to compete with people who are 20 years plus younger than her. But people weren't looking at them physically as what they were able to do. They were looking at them as like, it's different than what we have out right now. And we don't like that, you know? When I read about your experience with the USTA, you're Mm -hmm. the top of the junior world here. Mm -hmm. And they're I think they handled it in perhaps the worst possible way. Yeah. Uh, And I wanted to ask you about whether that was related, do you think, to racism? Was it related to body stigma, Mm -hmm. all of the above? You said, you know, I was being punished for being me, basically. Mm -hmm. This is who I am. I'm a black woman, and I'm a bigger woman, and I'm being punished for being me. How did that impact your mental health overall? It definitely affected my mental health. I just wasn't aware of it. And I think that's kind of the danger of mental health because you don't really know when things are going to really set in. 
And I think that's something that we are kind of seeing with Naomi. Like she's been doing very, very well. And she won Australian Open, you know, won a Grand Slam and has been doing really well. Like if you look at tennis stats, but overall, you know, you she hasn't really been feeling the same. It hasn't really been feeling great on court. So I just feel like that's kind of a, a testament to where you really have to understand and take a look and be and be able to say, like, I need a break. I need to take a step back. And, you know, I didn't really have that opportunity when I was going through that stuff with USTA because for me, like I said, it was one foot in front of the other. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I never stopped. So I never had time to really process what was happening. I more so was just like, I'm on to the next thing and I'm on to the next thing. I'm playing the next tournament. And that is the nature of our sport as well. Our off season is very short. You know, at the time I was living down in Florida, my parents weren't with me. So I was there by myself. So I didn't have a lot of time at home to where I can just kind of relax. Like I never really relaxed. So I didn't have the opportunity to really kind of marinate and think about what was happening. I was just like, Hey, got to keep going. I'm not going to let this stop me. I just got to keep going. I have to keep moving. I want to the next. It happened. It is what it is. Let's keep going. And, and so not until later, like years later, did I realize that, man, like this really messed with me. You know what I mean? And, and, um, it, like I said, it was years and I had to take the time to kind of unpack that baggage understand like how it affected me, how it made me feel, how people's opinions of me were affecting how I looked at myself. And this was years of work as well. Like, you know, seeing sports psychologists and trying to figure out because it's not like those those thought processes just were solely off court. Like they bled into my performance on court. So Diane, Taylor talked about experiencing what was essentially body shaming from the United States Tennis Association. They made her sit out the U.S. Open because of her weight, and she was the number one ranked girl in the world. I think that's horrific. What is that like, and how susceptible is the teenage brain to this type of treatment? Well, it's not just the teenage brain. I think any brain... But during those teen years, you know that young people, that's when they're forming opinions about themselves and uh, about how they look, how they feel. And sometimes they judge themselves very harshly, particularly comparing themselves to other people. So it's one thing to have a friend or, or a classmate or even a group of classmates making comments about your body, your body weight, how you look, how you're growing. It's quite another thing to have the entire U.S. Tennis Association give an opinion on how you look, your size. So I think it would be devastating really to anyone to experience that. She seemed pretty resilient about it, I thought, though. She had a great attitude towards it where she was just almost she kind of fought back against it. And I love that about her. And she was a beautiful person inside and out. I I really enjoyed this conversation. And I don't know how that would affect somebody going forward. When you look at your body and people have said things, what can that lead to? Well, I think what Taylor displayed was 
that she's a highly resilient individual, even at 13 years old, for her to fight back, for her to play regardless. That speaks to a really resilient young woman. And some of that is just coming from who she is, but also from the love and respect of the people around her, family members who supported her. Resilience is a skill that you have to learn over time. And she displayed that she had a lot of resilience even at that young age. But if you're someone who doesn't have that support around you, who doesn't have a loving, nurturing home life that feels very isolated, and then you're reading this on social media or or having a lot of people that are making those kind of comments, that does lead not just to eating disorders, body dysmorphia, or viewing your body in an abnormal way, but also to depression, to anxiety, to substance abuse. So it can have a real impact. The fact that she was so strong in being able to push through that. It does speak to the the support that she had, but also this internal strength and resilience. If you see something like that happening as a coach or a parent, how do you talk to a child that has been through something like that or is going through something like that? Well, I think you get out ahead of it because we all grew up went through our teen years, know how harsh we were with ourselves, how probably most of us have have bullied someone else over the years as well and maybe and hopefully feel badly about it now. So you know what's coming, right? So getting out ahead of it, talking to your kids when they're very, very young about being proud of their bodies, helping them to make healthy choices as they go along as well, but recognizing we're all different, having those conversations ahead of time, having conversations and knowing what your kids are doing on social media what they're watching. Young women and young men both have a propensity to look at idealized body images and then comparing themselves to that. And just looking at those images, and we know there are algorithms that drag you further and further into that kind of world online, you have to, as a parent, have an awareness that that's going on and try to mitigate the risk beforehand. So what can we learn from Taylor? We can learn that... There's more to being an incredible athlete than having that skill, that that resilience is what pulled her through. That could have been the end of her career, right there. With the U.S. Open incident in the rearview mirror, Taylor continued on like the athlete she is. She left juniors and started playing with pros. But something felt different. Her ranking started to tell a story Taylor wasn't familiar with. The girls that I played against in juniors shot up in the rankings on the WCA. And I was looking at them and these are girls that I was beating and juniors and, you know, like, what happened? Like, you know, that kind of started the cycle on top of all of the other things, the body image and everything. But I'm looking at my peers and seeing them have the results that I wanted to have, do well at the tournaments that I wanted to do well at, the slams and everything and accomplishing the rankings that I believe that I could get, but I just wasn't getting to those places, I kept hitting these walls and these hurdles. So that kind of started it. And then my ranking fell from 93 in the world to 400 and something in a week. Like I looked on the computer one day and I was 93 top 100. The next day I'm 400 because I lost all of these points. And that was like very, very tough because it was almost like you kind of having to start at zero. Like I was going from being in main draw of Grand Slams and main draws of Masters 1000s and big events and being in main draws or even qualifying of these tournaments to then I'm having to play qualifying of like 
the lowest level tournaments, you know, that there are, you know, you have to win two matches to even get one point. So I'm at this level. And, and that mentally was very difficult for me because I was like, I couldn't believe it at first. And that's how I was playing on court. It, that mental, how I had it in my head was like, you know, I shouldn't be here. That's how it was relaying on court. It was like a very humbling moment for me. I, I remember I was in South Carolina, Sumter, South Carolina, and I lost this match in qualifying. And I was just like, this sucks. Like, I'm just, I'm not enjoying myself. Like, I'm not supposed to be here. And then it was another tournament a couple of weeks later in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And it kind of became a running joke in my family. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's funny now where they were like, oh, you're going to a tournament? Okay, we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> because like, I would go Ouch. and then I would lose and then I'd be back home like the next day or the day after. So it was like, it wasn't funny, but it was funny at the same time. Like it's funny now. But I mean, that's literally what was happening. Like I would go to a tournament and I would be got, like be back home in, in two days. And that's including travel and everything. And I was at this tournament in Rock Hill, South Carolina. We drove there, five hours there, got to the hotel, played my match the next day, lost, got on the road and came back home. Like it was literally a two-day trip for a tournament. After that tournament, I was like, I'm done. Like I quit. I can't take it anymore. I'm depressed. I hate being out on the court. I'm not enjoying myself. Like ten- this is not what... I remember tennis being. Tennis for me has always been a release. Sport has always been something where I've been able to escape what was happening on the outside, you know, and that's what I've used sport as. And that's when the reality hit me was like, no, this is actually your job. And you're in the red every week. You're not making any money. You're actually losing money. You have all of these expenses. I just got my first apartment. I had my first car. So I had all these expenses of a grown person (laughs) and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, this is reality. And, and I got to a place where I was just like, you know, I just can't do it anymore. And someone asked me like, what are you going to do? Like, you don't have any skills. Only thing you know is tennis. Like, I was like, I don't know, but I was just miserable and had companies telling me, oh, we, I owe them money and, you know, I'm going to have to pay this amount and, and that amount. And I was like, I, I don't even have that much in my bank account. How am I going to do that? I'm stressing out about like, you know, where my next dollar was going to come from. And and it was kind of like, that was the moment where I was like, man, like, this is my reality. Like, this is your job. And this is not what I thought it was going to be. Um, And I quit, but I quit for three days. After day one, I jumped up out of bed because I was like, oh my God, I'm late for practice. And I was like, oh, I don't have practice. Like, it was just so weird because I was so used to being on that routine. And after a couple of days, my coach at the time, I called him and I was like, hey, you know, can I come hit? Like, I, I think I'm ready. And it was like three days. He's like, okay, yeah, come on. And he was like, and bring your running shoes. And I was like, oh, man. So I go to practice. He's like, you know, put on your running shoes. And we didn't hit a ball that day. He just literally ran me for two hours straight. Like, just started making stuff up. But we didn't even talk about you know, the moment of you quitting, like him making me run for two hours was just like, basically like, don't you ever give up? Like, don't you ever quit? Like, no matter how hard things get, like you continue to go and you continue to move one foot in front of the other. 
And we literally didn't even talk about it. Like I just ran and ran and ran and ran. And after that day, like everything turned around. He had me write down my ranking on a piece of paper and had me write down my goals. And it's just like, okay, this is where you are, accept it. This is where you want to be. Okay, we're going to get there. The only place that I can go from here is up. So Taylor, there comes a point in everybody's life and as an athlete too as well where things aren't going well and we kind of start to feel sorry for ourselves a little bit. Did you get to that point? Is that up those leading up to that moment? Um, Kind of not not really because I'm not that kind of person. Like I'm not the, the... Yeah, I should... I wouldn't say I should just say where our ego kind of gets in the way and it's kind of like, and we used to call it in hockey, feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah. (laughs) Because you're like, but our ego gets in the way and Mm -hmm. we're like, yeah, this sucks. And what am I doing here? I'm better than this. And now I'm back to where I started. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember a particular time I got sent to the minors after playing in the NHL and and I blew a game because I just was like, I, I was just, what am I doing back here? This yeah. is where I started. How did this happen? So did you go, is that kind of similar to what you went through? That's exactly what I went through. And I didn't realize that it was my ego. I thought that, you know, it was maybe me just not playing well, but I just had this internal feeling like, why am I here? Like, I can't believe I'm playing these tournaments. You know, I lost against a call, like a girl who wasn't even college. Like she was maybe like 16. And I was like, what is going on? Like, so it was definitely that. And it was like, like I said, it was a very humbling experience because you have to really like remove that to be able to move forward. Because if you don't, you're just going to keep hitting that same wall over and over and over again until you really accept like, no, this is where you are. Like your ranking is 400 something. You're not in the top 100 anymore. You're not going to get in those tournaments. You're not even close. So, you know, you have yeah. to go through the grind to get back to where you want to be and better. And I I think that's what it was. Like, I just embraced the grind. I was just like, you know what? Whatever I have to do, I have to do, but I know that I'm not staying here. <laughs> they don't want to but be there. And then, yeah, you get a little bit of a reality check. I remember I was in Albany, New York, and this cloud cover that was just barely, like, it was just dark and dreary. And I just, it was that moment that just, uh, it was just... <laughs> I had to, after that game, I had to swallow my pride and my mm-hmm. ego and, and it was a reality check. And when a coach said to me once, uh, said to me, you know what, um, it, you know, the only way out of here is to play your way out. Mm-hmm. And that made sense to me. Uh, and it sounds like you kind of got that reality check that, mm-hmm. Hey, nobody's going to hand it to you. Right. The right. only way out was to play your way out. And it sounds like you and this coach seem to uh, hit it off that way. What I've heard from you from the beginning of this discussion is resilience. Mm-hmm. And to me, resilience, it can be a dirty word to some people. I don't see it that way, but it, it doesn't mean suck it up buttercup. What oh. it means is you go through these really tough times and you come through stronger. Mm-hmm. And that's clearly what's happened to you. So what happened when you hit that low point and your coach said, we got to pivot here. He didn't say anything, in fact. <laughs> but you read, <laughs> you got to pivot. Now you want you want to get back at it. You want to get back to the pro. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So in that moment, it was a humbling moment because I had to put my ego to the side and accept, like, honestly, I just kind of embraced the steps that I had to take. And I didn't know what those steps were. Because even, like, coming out of the juniors, like, I had points. Like I had ranking points. So I couldn't remember the last time that my ranking had been that low. So I had to kind of like map out 
what that was going to look like, like what that grind was going to look like of like playing these little tiny tournaments. I mean, I could tell you, like I played a small tournament. It's a pro event. And I lost in the first round of qualifying and I took home $61. Like now this is after I flew there, hotel, uh, food, and my coach's expenses. And they handed me a check for $61. And I was like, I was so mad. It's like, I don't even want this. But it was just like in those moments where it just motivated me. It's just like, you know, all right, on to the next one. Like, and just put one foot in front of the other. And that pivot was just like, I just had to grind. And I knew that you're going to have to play tournaments that you don't want to play. You're going to have to go to places you don't want to go. Sumter, South Carolina, Dothan, Alabama, Pelham, Mississippi, or Alabama, like these places that you've never heard of where it's so random. But I'm just like, these are the things that I would had to do. And incrementally, like it definitely didn't happen overnight. But a couple of tournaments lost in the first round. Then I won a round. I mean, it went almost nine months that I didn't win a match. Like one match. So wow. it was like, you know, having, it didn't happen overnight. But I just kept building and just kept trying to not allow myself to get to that place where I was just like, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I just was like, okay, just keep going, just keep going. And one day, like, it just, things turned around. And once it turned around, it just kind of kept going up from there. Were you battling some depression at that point at all, do you think? I was. I didn't even realize mm -hmm. that I was. And yeah. And honestly, when I found, when I realized that I was depressed was when I moved into my apartment, it was my first apartment. I had never, like, I lived by myself and I was like 40 minutes away from my parents. Like nobody lived close to me. And, you know, I have ample time to sit and be alone where I'm just like, man, like I'm really not happy. And um, I didn't realize that I was depressed. I was sad. I was upset. I was you know, trying to figure out, like, how did this happen? Why did it happen? And I had never really had that feeling before. So in that, it was directly tied to my performance on court as well. So I had to take a step back and I decided to get help and I decided to talk to someone and just, you know, kind of put it on the table about how I was feeling and, and try to kind of work through those things because, those feelings that I was having were affecting me on court and it, not in a positive way. And I think during those nine, 10 months where I hadn't won a match, like those thoughts and those feelings were in my head. And, you know, you're on the road week after week living out of a suitcase. Like it's very lonely. You're away from your family. You're away from everybody. You know, it can be very isolating. So, you know, I, I wanted to kind of get out of that, but it was one of those situations where I, never, I didn't really like think that it was depression. You know what I mean? Because when you think about it, it can be embarrassing at times. Yeah. You, you, you kind of be like, oh, that's not what it is. You know, maybe I'm just having a bad day. But, you know, when I think back on, I was like, no, like you were depressed. Like you were acting out of character and doing things that you would have normally not done. And I think those are some of the signs that, that you are. You hadn't won for nine months. So like, that's... So what happened, uh, if you look at where I started to struggle, my play fell off a cliff, mm -hmm. right? And my stats fell off a cliff. And it sounds like 
you know, you went nine months without a win. And, and Diane, it's like, how can people not see that for help? Because you were a good player. Mm-hmm. Like, you were a great player. And your play doesn't just fall off a cliff like that. Just like someone doesn't go from a straight-A student to an F, an F student. And that's a sign of mental health. And, and Diane, I mean, you've seen this a ton of times. Well, I think everyone experiences it differently. And Taylor, it sounds like you weren't sure what was going on. All you knew is, I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with getting help? What worked? What didn't? Mm-hmm. Did you get the right help right away? Or was it a little bit of a journey to find the help you needed? No, it was a journey because I actually had a really bad experience with my the first like sports psychologist that I worked with. And I was very leery about talking to someone because I didn't have a good experience at all. So that kind of scarred me and it made me hold off on not talking to someone and trying to work through it internally because, you know, it was someone that I trusted and then I felt like it was being violated. And so it, with all the things that happened prior, you know, with USTA and everything, like, it was a sense where it's like, okay, you trust these people and then you get stabbed in the back. You trust someone and you open yourself up and then, you know, you kind of get, you know, kicked in the butt. So it's like, how many times do you go through that? So certain situations kind of made me clam up and weren't allowing me to be open and the kind of open and trusting person that I am. So it was a journey. Like I had to kind of, for me, it was, it was a self journey and going back to like some of the habits that you know, I had like, for me, I was just, what I noticed was like, I was just stress eating. I was like emotionally eating. I was upset. Like, I didn't care. Like, (laughs) I was just like, yeah, it is what it like. That was one of the things. And, you know, athletes, you have to be so strenuous and and focused on your diet. And that was one of the things was just like, you know what, screw it. I don't even care. And, And, um, like I got to the place where I was like, the biggest that I ever been like weight wise. And I was like, oh my gosh. So one day I was just like, this has to stop. And it was a self journey for me. So I decided that I'm like, no, I'm not happy. and I'm going to do something about it. And I purposely like didn't work with a trainer, with a nutritionist, with anyone, because I wanted it to all be on me. And that's the kind of pressure that I put on myself. So I was just like, if I fail, it's because of Taylor. If I succeed, it's because of Taylor. And that's kind of when the shift happened as well, because I knew that like there was nobody else to blame. There was nobody else that I could point and say, you helped me do this. Like it was all me. And so like I had created a routine for myself. Like I was in the gym constantly, like, you know, changed my eating habits. Like we're just really, really, really focused. And and was able to turn that around and, you know, doing journaling and trying to take time to figure out what I like to do and trying to relearn myself. So it was a self journey. And I think that in that moment, you know, it was very powerful and like empowering for me. And I think that's what kind of helped make that switch on court. Corey, I was just so grateful that Taylor brought up her struggle with finding the right help once she realized she needed it. It's just such a difficult thing. And I wonder, what was your experience like finding the right help? Well, I'll be honest, Diane, it it wasn't good. Back in the mid-90s is when I got diagnosed and struggled to find the right help. It was one thing getting diagnosed. It was another thing finding somebody that could truly help me. That took 
six or seven different therapists, probably 10 years of trying to find uh, a good therapist that was out there that really knew what they were doing. I went to people that thought they could help me and it was out of their area of expertise. And I, I think that's an issue we have today. But I think we're in a different world today. It's not quite as difficult to find the proper help. And Taylor was actually a bit lucky that she did find it so quickly. And as you know, Diane, it's usually for most people eight to 10 years, I believe, before they even reach out for help. And then it's even longer to get the right help. And that's what is so important about going and getting the right help immediately instead of hiding and waiting for such a long time to go get the proper help. Well, I guess that leads into my next question is, once you got the right help, what did it do for you? Changed my life. It, it really did. It changed everything. I, I could live again. I could function again. I could do things I, I wasn't able to do. It didn't just stop right there. Even today, I'm still looking for the proper ways to manifest and deal with what I deal with. But I got on medication, which I say to this day saved my life. I found the right help, somebody that was more of a specialist in my area. I always say, you don't go to the knee surgeon to get your shoulder done. What's going to happen there? So it's the same for mental health. If you're bipolar, OCD, whatever it may be, it's so important to go to somebody that specializes in that. So what would you say to someone who's pretty discouraged out there? They feel like they haven't made the right connection. What would you tell them? Keep searching. Like I said, people get discouraged after one therapist. They go. They don't really have a relationship. They don't, it's just not feeling it. And then they stop. I went to six therapists, maybe seven. And it is a bit more of a personal connection than just your GP. However... Eventually, I did find somebody because I kept going. So my suggestion, just like anything, never quit, never stop searching. It does get better. And like you said, Diane, there's always a path. There's always a path ahead. And we're all unique individuals. It's why we're not friends with every human being that we meet, because sometimes we have a fit and sometimes we don't. If you're seeing someone for talk therapy, and I know that's really where you tried to find help early on, the first appointment can sometimes be uncomfortable. So if you're really set off and extremely uncomfortable, maybe not have a, a second appointment. But I found for many of my patients, when I've sent them to see a psychologist or a counselor, it takes a couple of appointments to get your groove. Yep. But if after a couple of appointments, you're thinking, okay, this is not for me, listen to that voice, please ask someone else for help. Any therapist who is the kind of professional you'd want to work with would also understand that. It's not something personal to leave your therapist and try to see someone else. And that goes not just for your psychologist or, or counselor, but also for your psychiatrist. If you don't have a fit, if you can't be honest, ask to be seen by someone else. I remember asking one of the therapists that I had the first session what it's like, and you've talked about this too with you and I, it's more about getting to know what you're dealing with and how to deal with it, is it not? Anytime you meet a new patient or for a psychologist or a counselor, a, a new client, it's all about creating a relationship based on understanding. 
right? The, the therapist is in a very powerful position. They know more about you than you know about them. So it's also a very respectful relationship. The recognition that that individual needs to feel comfortable, needs to be able to be honest and open, and also that it's all about them. It's not about me as the doctor. It's not about the psychologist or the social worker. It's about the patient and what their needs are. For a while, it seemed Taylor was set on fixing her own problems. She had that driven athletic mindset of, I can do this on my own. And that motivation worked until it didn't. Until she was in uncharted territories after the birth of her son, Aiden. After having my my child, I was experiencing postpartum depression, and I didn't even realize that I was experiencing that as well. And that was one of the, another one of the things I'm like, I just don't feel like myself. You know, it's weird, but I was embarrassed about it because I was feeling a certain type of way that I couldn't explain. And I was pouring so much energy into my son and nursing. And it's a 24 hour job, honestly, like you can't turn it off. So, you know, just giving all of my effort and energy to him to where I was kind of neglecting like myself and how I felt. And the feelings just started compounding. And Contrary to like me feeling like I could help myself, you know, a couple of years ago. Recently, when I was feeling that, I was like, you know, what? I don't feel like myself. I'm going to talk to someone. And that's when I reached out to a sports psychologist. And it was someone that I had worked with in the past, but it wasn't consistent. But I felt like, she, you know, she was a voice of reason and someone that I could talk to and that I trusted. And, you know, we were able to kind of dive through these things. It had nothing to do with tennis. It had nothing to do with sports, but it was someone that I trusted and that I wanted to talk to and that had an objective opinion. And, you know, we were kind of able to work through that. And one of the things was just not feeling embarrassed about that you weren't okay. Like it's, and I know everyone says it's okay not to be okay. Um, But really like taking that and understanding like, okay, you're not going to be great every day. You're not going to have a great day every day, but it's like about just trying to accept that and, and acknowledge that, okay, today may be one of these days, but you know, how am I going to work through it to maybe not give these negative feelings a lot of energy. And and that's what I, and it wasn't an overnight instant thing. Like it took some weeks to get over, but the biggest part for me was just not feeling embarrassed about how I felt, you know, between the ears. Do you think that hearing other people talking about mental illness more openly helped you to feel more comfortable to talk about it now? Or if not them, what helped you to talk more openly about it? Definitely. I don't really feel as though like I spoke out a lot about mental health in particular because I don't think that I made that connection. Like it wasn't really talked about that much and it wasn't something where you can say, hey, like this could be attributed to mental health. You know, it was more so of like, you know, this is my experience and I'm just going to keep it moving. But it's definitely empowering to have other athletes to be able to bounce on and, and talk to and like, when I saw the stuff that was going with, on with Naomi, like I literally said, I was like, I wish that I could talk to her. Like, that's what I said when I was at home because I was like, I really feel as though like I don't understand what you're going through in your caliber because I haven't accomplished the things that you've accomplished. I haven't won a slam before. You know, I have, I'm not the highest paid female athlete. Like, you know, you have titles and things and pressures that, you know, I haven't had to experience. But I was like, I know what she's going through. Like, I was like, I wish. And that's the one thing that I said. I was like, I wish I could talk to her. So 
the same thing with like Simone Biles when I we were I was watching the Olympics and I heard about that stuff. I was just like, it's so it was it was so bizarre to me, like how it happened in competition. You know what I mean? Like you work so hard to get to this moment. And in gymnastics, you know, the Olympics is the top tier. Like you don't get, you know, and it only happens every four years. But, you know, for her to be able to say like, you know, I'm just not in the space, like, you know, it really attributes to like the strength that she has because it takes a lot for you to be able to put your ego to the side and say, hey, like, I'm going to let you guys do your thing, even though I know that I can win, (laughs) which is like, basically, you know, she knew it, but it's just like, I'm going to give other people, not only other people an opportunity, but like, I just need to make sure that I'm good for me. And I was kind of on the fence about it at the beginning. And then I watched something, a video or something with her. And she said that, you know, it can be very dangerous when you start doubting yourself, especially in gymnastics, because you're flipping, you're on bars, you're going upside down. And I didn't think about that. So the perspective that she gave from the inside, from a different sport that I've never done before, I was like, I kind of felt bad for being so critical at the beginning because I'm like, no, you're, you should be, you should compete and da, da, da. But then when she told, when she talked about it, I was like, man, so is it worth breaking your neck to prove something? Is it worth, you know, you may not ever be able to do gymnastics again to prove a point. Maybe not. And, and I, so it was a different thought process and a different enlightenment that I didn't have at the beginning. So it's amazing that people are able to kind of have these open discussions because it wasn't talked about before and all sports present a different type of pressure, but we can all relate to each other in in one way or the other. So I think it's amazing. Diane, I want to take it back to when Taylor talked about postpartum depression. What is postpartum? How can someone recognize it? And I just want you to unpack it for our listeners so that they can even know what they're dealing with if they're struggling with something like that. So the postpartum period, just to start with the word postpartum, post means after and partum means pregnancy. So it's the time after you've given birth. And it extends out, depending on the professional you ask, usually about a year. Some people say it's six months, but a year after you've had a baby, that's the postpartum period. And postpartum depression is quite common. And I want to make this point. Women are, of course, the people that get postpartum depression, right? And women are at greater risk, two times the risk of getting depression than men. But men are at actually greater risk of depression after their partner gives birth because of the percentage likelihood of them getting depressed. So it's actually a period of risk for men and for women after the birth of their child. So can postpartum lead into other mental illnesses for people? Yeah, so postpartum depression is a depression in and of itself, and it can be a very serious depression. It can come on quickly and lead to really serious symptoms and risk, including suicide, So it's a very serious illness. Is there a a range in postpartum depression? Like, does it go from being a little bit sad to abnormal? Is it something that will eventually pass for people without treatment and then others need treatment? Thanks for asking that, Corey, because absolutely it's common for people to have a period of what is actually called the baby blues 
a few days, maybe a week of feeling a little more down, a little emotional. And almost everyone experiences that, or many, many women do, and that passes. It's not dangerous. It's quite normal. It's when things get to real depression symptoms that last, it's most of the time, you're feeling very down, hopeless, helpless. And if you don't know as someone who's supporting a woman who's struggling or you're the woman yourself who's struggling, ask for help. A professional will be able to give you the information you need to determine, do I need more help or is this likely just to pass? If you recognize a spouse is having these sort of issues, what's something, what's the first thing you do? What's something you can do to help or where do you go if you recognize something like this? Immediately ask for help. So whether you have a a nurse practitioner, a family practitioner, a helpline for mental health, it is a serious situation. So it's really important if you're worried about someone you love that you seek help as quickly as you can. Oh, and that's not to scare people out there. That's just to the reality that we need to, all of mental illness, That that's why getting help immediately is so important. Absolutely. It's not about about judgment. It's one of the devastating parts about postpartum depression is that people have this belief, especially with their first child, that somehow you're going to look like Mother Earth and everything's going to be perfect and you bond immediately with your baby. And the things that we read and hear kind of feed into that. Breastfeeding is one of the best things on earth to do and one of the hardest things on earth to figure out in the beginning. It's painful, it's complicated, it's difficult, and not everyone wants to, and not everyone should. You don't have to, and that doesn't make you a terrible person. And it's all of those expectations on new moms that make the whole thing even worse. And if then you're suffering from postpartum depression on top of that and maybe have some scary thoughts about yourself or your child, you don't want to tell anyone because what kind of mother am I to have these thoughts? And your background in OCD, Mm -hmm. you know that sometimes you can have really awful and intrusive thoughts and you're like, why am I thinking that? Well, imagine being a new mom and having a thought that's coming into your head are you going to tell anyone? Often not. And that's why a good doctor, the the nurse practitioner that's following up in the postpartum period needs to ask those questions. The beauty of Taylor's story is that she's just 25 years old and she's already started to figure this stuff out. She was able to recognize when to get help and she actually got it. Talking about postpartum depression, and I know you're Aiden, is that his name? He's Yes. How are you doing on that front, and, and how has life changed on the other side of being a mom? It's been great. Like, it was probably a period of, like, two, maybe three to five weeks that I was kind of feeling that way. Actually, like, you know, things happen for reasons that we don't aren't really aware of sometimes. But, you know, my best friend's birthday— um, was in July and she had this trip planned in Puerto Rico. I'd never been on vacation before and that was going to be the first time that I was going to be away from him. I know, I'm looking at her. You know, like, like, what? what? Yeah, I'd never been on vacation. Like, I'd never been to a place where I was going somewhere not related to tennis or, you know, anything like that. Like, traveling, like, purely for leisure. Never did that before. So that was the first for me. And that was the first time I was leaving him. But... um I needed it and I didn't realize that I needed it. And man, I took days and I just sat on the beach and I journaled and I read my, like, it was just so relaxing. And honestly, like I had an exercise from my sports psychologist where it's like kind of just write down like some of the things of what actually it wasn't from, it was from my trainer. 
he told me, he was like, write down what you feel as though your best version of you is. And on all the levels, best version of Taylor as a mom, as a tennis player, as this, as that, and really kind of break it down. And so I kind of had to take a deep look at me and how I felt about me. And I think that I really needed that to kind of be able to refresh and restart and kind of look at myself in like a positive light. And to understand, I'm like, you know, I'm on a journey where I've never been before. I don't know. I have never experienced this. It's going to be a lot of new. It's going to be a lot of first. Part of the thing that irritates, like not irritates me, but like I hate not knowing what's next or the unknown like freaks me out. So, you know, with a kid, you never know what's going to happen day to day, moment to moment. <laughs> so it's like, it kind of freaked me out. And diaper change to diaper change. You don't know what's going to happen. Yep. Yeah. So it's like the unknown would always kind of like make me a little bit anxious and you try to plan as much as you can, but it's like, you can only plan so far. So that vacation really helped me a lot just to kind of reset and emotionally reset, mentally reset and um, get to a place where, I felt like I could be my best. And um, and since being a mom, I mean, it's changed. I still feel like the same. Like, I still feel like the same Taylor, the same person. So I don't feel like I've changed. But like, just my overall like motivation and desire like to come back and do well on the court. Like, I tell people, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Like, this is the hardest journey I ever, despite all the other stuff. Like, this is the hardest because... It's the most self-disciplined and like committed that I've had to be to like every aspect of myself. And like, it's not something that you can turn off because it's like, I haven't played in over a year. Like I haven't played matches. Like I hadn't really hit balls pretty much from three months to I had them. And then after, like I had to have a C-section. So for two months, I was just trying to recover and walk and just do things pain-free um, and just having to relearn how to use my body and my core and everything. So I'm like, this is the hardest thing that I've been on. But this journey has like been so empowering because I know that like when I go back and play, like I know the work that I've done, it's going to be so rewarding. Like I'm just so excited because like I've never had to do anything this hard. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like when I go back, like I just know that some of the doubts and some of the feelings that I used to have of like not feeling good enough, those are going to be gone. One, because I have like, you know, my son that's looking at me and, you know, is on this journey with me, but also because I know that like I committed to myself and that there's nobody that can take these things away from me. Like I've always been a hard worker and I've always prided myself on like, doing the very best that I can with anything that I do. So I've always worked hard, but it's like still with my hard work, like I said, it's it always felt like it wasn't good enough. Like it was always something that people could pick apart. But on this journey, like that's out the window. Like <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. Like when I walk out on that court, like I deserve to be there. You know what I mean? So those feelings mm. of doubt and unsureness or like, Am I, you know, am I good enough? Am I, do I deserve to be like, those things are going out the window because I know, like I put in the work, the time, the hours, the sweat, all of this stuff to be here and to get back. So like, I'm just so excited to like, uh, for what's ahead because it's been amazing so far. 
aside from the fact that you and your sister pelted each other pretty hard with <laughs> tennis balls, she's been a pretty solid love in your life, uh, influence in your life, and she stepped up again. Can you talk about what role your sister is playing now in, in your comeback? Oh, my gosh. She's the best auntie. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's amazing. Like, she dropped everything that she was doing when I first came back from the hospital and came and helped me. Like, I mean, I couldn't get in the shower. I couldn't bathe myself. Like, I couldn't even, like, get off the toilet by myself. Just getting up and down was just, was difficult. And she dropped everything and came and helped me. She bathed me, like, fed me, everything. She's just like, whatever you need. And so it was so amazing. And just seeing her, like, connect and, like, bond with Aiden has been so amazing. Like, it's just something that I would have never thought because honestly, like nobody believed me when I said I was pregnant. I never wanted kids. <laughs> I don't like kids. <laughs> like, I'm so serious. And people are like, how is this possible? But um, I have a great support system, which is amazing. Like, you know, my family, um, my boyfriend's family, like, everybody has just been so loving and encompassing. I mean, Aiden's the first grandchild and my gr my grandma's first great-grandchild. So he's going to be incredibly spoiled. And, you know, I, he feels the love from everywhere. So it's great. Well, you've got you've got a fan over here when you when you make your <laughs> when you make your debut again. <laughs> oh, I'm so but excited. I get it, right? It's it's um there's a point you come in your career where you just it was hard those nerves that you have before mm -hmm. you play a match or whatever. And there comes a point where you just screw it. Right? Like you just kind of turn that corner. It's like, I, I'm just going to do the best I can. And what it is is what it is. Mm -hmm. And I remember going around the, just enjoying, just enjoying everything because we don't know when it's going to be taken away from us and, and when it can be again. So it sounds like you, you've been through all that. I can't believe you're, uh, how old are you again? Good <laughs> Lord, I'm learning things. I'm writing things down. I'm like, I got to get on a holiday and go journaling and all this. I'm uh, it's your, your story is, is just so incredible. And you're going to, you just, the resilience you have. Um, it's so impressive. Diane's got some great finishing questions here for you that I love when she mm -hmm. throws out because I'm always fascinated at what the answers are. So okay. I'll let Diane take it from here. It's one of the greatest gifts that I ever have had in my life is accepting that the only human being on earth I can control is me. Yeah. And my children went a long way to teaching me that because they pop out and they poo and scream and do whatever they want yeah. right from the get-go. So you really, I mean, it really brings home those lessons of the only person on earth, even if I, I want to control people around me, I can't, only me. Mm -hmm. The last thing I want to ask you, Taylor, is if you had an opportunity to talk to 15-year-old Taylor mm -hmm. again, what would you tell her? Man, I would tell her, trust your gut. Every time that I have a feeling, it's usually right about people. I think that I've just been like blessed with like intuition about stuff, but like with people, situations. And every time, like I can't tell you how many times that I've thought back and I'm like, oh gosh, I wish I would have just went with my first mind. And, you know, even did it on court where it's like, you know, you second guess yourself and, you know, you end up being like, oh, I knew I should have went there. I knew I should have did this. And so it's just like, I would just tell her, trust your gut and you're good enough. Like you're enough. Believe that you're enough. Don't allow people to feel, make you feel like you're less than or that you're not good enough. 
So that's what I would that's what I would tell her because hopefully that advice would allow me to kind of steer how I felt about me and maybe I didn't have to go through so many of the hurdles of, you know, insecurity and self-confidence issues and, you know, feeling like I had to prove something to other people more than I had to prove it to myself. I love that you said that. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank Taylor. you guys. I really, really appreciate getting to know you and seeing this force for for good and resilience that you are. Absolutely. Yeah, no, this has been fun. I'm glad to talk to you guys. 